0: There is a song that some of you grew up hearing, and the chorus, or the, phrase, the one of the most popular phrases in the song is "One is the loneliest number." The song is entitled "One," and it was written by a guy named Harry Nilsson. And it was interesting when I was doing a little research on this song; he he wrote the song in response to a busy signal that he got when he called someone. And that's why if you know the song well, that that, um, you have this repeated beep, 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 beep all over during the song because it's like this busy signal that he was hearing. And you may have heard the song, even if you weren't born in 1968 when it came out or if you didn't hear when Three Dog Night released it in 1969 and made it famous if you don't know this song from that, you might know it from various TV shows or the movie Shrek. Um, and, there are, and, and it seems like a, a much, you know, Harry Nilsson basically said, I didn't write it because of a breakup, but it certainly sounds like, if you listen to the words of the song, it sounds like a breakup song. But there are times when it's true that one truly can be a lonely number. If you're an extrovert, if you like being around people, if you enjoy the give and take of conversation, if you like the hubbub of all sorts of people, then one will feel devastating. But if you're an introvert and you gain energy from being by yourself and crowds like what we saw at Poolsville Day are around, then that stresses you out, then one Seems like the perfect number. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Now, when you talk to some people, they're all about numbers. I have a family member who's that way. Every church event that happens, we talk, and he says, oh, we had so many hundreds of people at this event. We had so many thousands of people. They go to a really big church. He goes to a really big church. We had this many people over. And i got to tell you, I can sometimes fall into that. Oh, we had so many people here. Oh, it's great. And sometimes we think that more is better. And we can sometimes even feel like if it's not more, then it's not good. But have you ever noticed that it's very difficult to have a conversation with more than one or two people at a time? Have you ever noticed that it's difficult to, to really engage people more than one at a time? A couple of weeks ago, we had a few people, uh, several people over to our house. I won't tell you the exact number because frankly, I don't remember and I didn't write it down and I can't do math that fast. But it was so fun. We had, we had a lot of food there. There was a lot of people. We were playing games. We even played football in the front yard and in bare feet. It was, it was great. But. I noticed that in a large group, it's easy for one person to get lost. It's easy to feel like you're talking to and interacting with everybody when that one person may feel like, no, 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 you didn't interact with me. And so over the last couple of weeks, we've been asking the question, who's your one? And so today we're going to consider With that, the importance of one, the importance of one person, the importance of that one person that God has called us, God might be laying on our hearts to reach. Sure, bigger numbers of people might mean more, but it doesn't always mean better. And instead of looking at just one passage today, we're going to reflect on the value of one in a couple of other places. So if you have your copy of Scripture and want to open to the book of Acts, we're going to start in Acts chapter 2, and we're going to flip our way all the way to Acts chapter 8. And if you want to take notes, here's where your notes begin, because we're going to really start by looking at the, the appeal of reaching many at once. The appeal of reaching many at once. Is, and I, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, you know, there's, there's this, there's a logic that says if I can do one thing with lots of people, At the same time, it's a much better use of time and energy and effort. If I can do it once, let's just get it done with once, and it'd be great. And we see that a couple times here in the earth part of the book of Acts. Let me just kind of catch us up to where we are. Jesus has died on the cross. He spent about 40 days with his disciples. He ascended. He told them, he said, you will be my witnesses, Acts 1.8, in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And then he ascended into heaven right before their eyes. But he told them before he went, he said, guys, I want you to stay here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit gives you power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And so they waited around in Jerusalem for about another 10 days praying. The Bible tells us there were about 120 people praying in an upper room. And then on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, roughly 50 days after Jesus died on the cross as our Passover lamb, the Holy Spirit came on these disciples in power. And they began to speak in other languages. And there were all sorts of people in town for the festival of Pentecost. And so all these foreigners were hearing the gospel, hearing people, these uneducated people speaking in their own language. And they were wondering, are these guys drunk? Have they had something to drink? It's it's too early in the day. And so Peter, moved by the Spirit, gives this rousing sermon. He quotes from many Old Testament sources in order to reach the Jewish congregation, Jewish population that was in front of him. And if you look in your Bibles, Acts chapter 2, verse 37 It says, and when they had heard this, when they heard Peter's message, when they heard what he had said, when they heard it, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And then here's the result. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Wow, what a day. What a day. Now, for almost any church leader, this would be an amazing day, wouldn't it? That would be great. In fact, I have prayed for days like that in the past. Oh, God, would you please do a big movement? Would you move in wonderful ways? And then on the other side of that prayer, I think, how in the world would we handle 3,000 people in one day? How would, we, how would we keep track of everybody? How would we train everybody? How would we invest in them? There's only so much time that we're just not ready, right? And it certainly seemed like the, the Spirit was moving powerfully. In fact, it continues in Acts 2, 42 to 47. It says, And they devoted themselves to, te- to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, those who were being saved. Man, what an amazing time that would have been, an amazing movement of the Holy Spirit. And it wasn't long after this that persecution broke out on the disciples. Instead of saying, God, please free us from this persecution, they prayed for boldness. They said, God, help us to be strong in the face of this, even these new believers. The perse- persecution forced some to spread out and also caused hardship for others, but it, there was a great unity in the church. So much so that they began to sell their possessions. As, it, as we already read, they sold things in order to meet the needs of one another. And yet not everyone was prepared to participate the way that God was moving among the others. And so they faked it. I know. You think, no, no, people don't fake it in church. Yeah, we're all genuine all the time, right? Right? But no, even in the early church, there were people who faked it. You see, non-believing individuals can be swept up in the many. In Acts chapter 5, we read the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And you see, I can imagine what it would look like. I'm just, And this is just me imagining. But you have these people selling property and bringing these huge gifts. Now, they didn't write it on checks like we might. They probably brought it with a big basket of something. And they're bringing money to share with everybody who was there. And I'm sure some people were getting amazing pats on the back and all the apostles were like, thank you, Barnabas, for doing this. Thank you, Eli, for doing this. Thank you, thank you. You know, we're sharing this with everybody. And so there's a little bit of notoriety. And I'm I'm guessing, this is me, this isn't scripture, but Ananias and Sapphira, they saw that. They saw, wow, people will look at us really good if we do this. But we still would need to keep some back. So the Bible tells us they sold some land and they brought part of the proceeds to the apostles and laid it at the apostles' feet. And they said, basically, the apostle said, is this all that you sold it for? And they said, yeah, we sold it for that much, not telling them that they had kept back some. It would be like selling your home here in Poolsville for 500000 and presenting a gift for 400000 all the while keeping the rest. And now I'm not saying that you should do that. I'm just saying that's what was happening back then, okay? And I don't bring that up to, to tell you that we're keeping track of your tax returns and, and your tithe and making sure that you're giving exactly the right amount. No, that's between you and the Lord, but I bring, in, bring that up because I wonder sometimes if in that big group of many people, some people, some individuals are just swept up and they're caught up into that. And it might look like emotionalism. It might look like, wow, all those, God is moving. And so if I just do this, then God will bless me in that way. If I look like I'm giving everything that God has blessed me with, then, wow, I'll be accepted by God. So there are some I think who can get caught up in the emotionalism, producing a response based on peer pressure rather than a genuine move of the spirit, based on something, some some coercive action of. of a speaker. And this is one of the reasons why we don't often do invitations. There are some churches that have invitations every week and they have a song that sometimes, some of you guys grew up in churches, maybe even in this very church. They used to sing like the same hymn over and over again, all 10 verses of just as I am. Just, and, and then you finally get worn down and you come up from your pew and you walk forward because after 10 verses, nobody has come forward. So you're going to say, please, I need this song to be done. I'm going to walk forward and just look like I'm doing something, right? Anybody ever done that? Oh, yeah, okay. Um, and so that's kind of why we, it's not about emotional manipulation, Sure, there is emotion involved, and I hope that we do get convicted by the Holy Spirit of our sin. And I hope that we do get convicted by those things that are out of alignment. And yeah, our emotions are involved in that. But it's ultimately the move of the Spirit and the word of the Lord helping us understand this is how we should live. And responding that way, responding that way. And so individuals, I think they can sometimes get caught up in the emotionalism of what God is doing. But also individuals can sometimes be swept up in manipulation. There's a scene a bit later in Acts chapter 8 when, when this man named Simon, who was a very charismatic speaker, I mean, this guy was doing miracles. He was doing great things, and he saw the apostles, and he saw these guys, and, and he saw that when they would lay their hands on someone else, when they would lay their hands on someone who was sick or lay their hands on someone who had just believed, they would receive the Holy Spirit. And he's thinking, I want that. And I think in the back of his mind, he's thinking, I can make some money with that. So he offered some money to the apostles and said, make it so that when I lay my hands on someone else, that they'll receive the Holy Spirit. And you can imagine a little bit of manipulation. You probably hear TV preachers doing the same thing. If you'll just give a little bit, I promise that we will pray for whatever your need is. If you'll just do this. And there's that manipulation. It's not about, you know, It's not about being manipulated into the kingdom of God. And sometimes individuals can get swept up into emotionalism and to manipulation. And not ever believe. Not ever believe. But there is something that we have to keep in mind. And that is that not all of us are called or gifted to preach to the many. Not all of us are gifted to do that. There, sure, there are some people who are gifted to, to speak to thousands and, and hundreds of people. I mean, we, th- we just saw, we read about the apostle Peter. He was uneducated and he got up in front of all these people and began to explain the word of God. He was gifted and blessed to do that. It wasn't really him. It was God working through him. But then throughout history, we've seen other preachers like that. We've seen people like Charles Spurgeon, who was sometimes referred to as the Prince of Preachers. This guy preached for decades in one church and saw it grow from this small congregation to a huge congregation. In fact, the congregation is still there today. It's not as big as it was when when Spurgeon was there. But he was gifted to preach in profound ways. Then you have guys like Billy Graham, who at one point in time was called the pastor to the presidents. He was one of the few pastors who often had access to presidents. He spoke and preached around the world to tens of millions of people. Some, and many, many millions came to faith in Jesus Christ through his ministry. He was gifted and blessed to do that. You have this guy named George Whitfield, who, during one of the great Awakenings, God used his booming voice and his powerful rhetoric to lead thousands of people to Christ, both in England and here in, in America. He, he, God worked in him in variety of ways, and there are so many other people who are gifted to do that, but not all of us are gifted, and that's okay. in fact, I would contend that because not all of us are gifted. To preach, that's a good thing. It's a good thing that we don't all have that ability. Even in Scripture, if you look at the Apostle Paul, he seemed to be a gifted preacher, but he was a way better teacher. He could sit down with people for hours and expound Scripture in small groups. And then he was also an intentional disciple maker. When you're reading through the book of Acts or you're hearing and kind of getting the picture in the background behind his letters, you hear that he's always with other people. Paul almost never did anything alone. He always had people with him. He, he understood the, the ins and outs of what people were experiencing. When you look at his letters to Philemon and Timothy and Titus, he was well aware of their needs and their strengths and their weaknesses. He knew the one that God has had assigned to him at that point in time. I believe there is value in public preaching. And God has ordained that to be a, one way that he calls people, but as I said last, in the last couple of weeks, it's not about our gathering here. It's really about him. It's not about whoever's standing behind this pulpit. It's about what we're doing together. But a couple of weeks ago, I also read a quote from Robert Coleman in his book, Master Plan for Evangelism, where he says, reaching the masses, although necessary, will never suffice in the work of preparing leaders for evangelism nor can occasional prayer meetings and training classes for Christian workers do this job. Individual men and women are, are God's method. God's plan for discipleship is not something, but someone. Which brings us to consider the importance of obedience to reach the one. The importance of obedience to reach the The one. We've seen in the book of Acts that there are some big events where thousands of people came to faith. But there are also events that are more personal, more one-on-one encounters, more individualistic approaches. And if you want to turn in your Bibles again, or I guess you may already be there in Acts chapter 8, we see this this event. This is shortly after Stephen got stoned, and shortly after this big persecution begins to break out against the church. And in Acts chapter 8. We, we see this very interesting encounter that has both miraculous events on the front end and on the back end, but then the outcome is tremendous. In, in Acts chapter 8, verse 26, it says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Now let's talk about that just for a moment. Let's think about a couple of things because an angel of the Lord came and was speaking to Philip. And he, so sometimes we think, well, if God would only speak to me like that. And sure, God still does from time to time. I believe in many cases in the Middle East, people come to faith or they're moved toward faith by miraculous dreams. So something miraculous told Philip he needed to go. But ultimately, it's the nudge of the Holy Spirit that is leading us and helping us to see what he wants us to do. But then look at what he says. Look at what the the angel says to Philip. He says, go down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And then what does Luke say as a little sidebar? It was a populated place, right? No, it was a desert place. So often we think that ministry has to happen in the most populated places. We would look at that and say, God, why in the world would you send me on this deserted road to go nowhere? Go to Gaza? What? And sometimes God will do what seems illogical in order to get us to to do things. We won't always fully understand. But Philip, he obeys. Look at verse 27. Chapter eight, it says, and he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court of the official Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship and, as, and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah, and the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Now, this man was important. He was given an important role in the house of the queen of Ethiopia. He was a foreigner, and yet yet he seemed to be someone who worshiped God. Maybe he was a proselyte. Maybe he converted to Judaism from whatever his tribal religion had been there in Ethiopia. But here's the thing. By nature of his position as a eunuch, his body had been mutilated, and, and he... His body had been mutilated, and so according to Old Testament law, he was not allowed to go in the temple. So and now you have this guy who's worshiping God. He's come to Jerusalem to worship God, and yet he can't go into the place where they worship God. He was forbidden to do that, but he still has this heart to worship the one true God. So he's on his way back, and he's reading Scripture, and so prompted by the Spirit, Philip joins up with his chariot and strikes up a conversation. Look at verse eight or verse 30 and 31. It says, so Philip ran up to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said to them, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And so in opening the conversation, Philip used what was already there. He used what they had in common. And, and certainly this man was curious about Scripture, and he wanted to understand. And I think that we are obedient to reach the one that God is leading us to. God will help us find that common ground. God will help us find that connecting point. Maybe it's the street we live on. Maybe it's the career that we have. Maybe it's the age of our children. Maybe it's a a natural curiosity that God has laid on that other person's heart. We will find, Lord willing, places where we can strike up conversations that possibly lead to gospel presentations. So being one-on-one, Philip's in the chariot with this guy. And he's able to discuss things personally with him. And here's what they were reading. Look in verse 32. It says, now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask, does the prophet say this? Is it about himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, beginning with this scripture He told him the good news about Jesus. Philip used the very thing that he was reading in order to help him understand all the good things that Jesus had done, the good news of Jesus. But then the question becomes, what is the good news of Jesus? In Matthew 1, verse 21, it says the good news is that he came to save his people from their sins. In fact, that's what Jesus' name means to save his people. And we learn uh, throughout the gospels that it's not just his people. It starts with Jewish people, but it's now everybody. We've, we've understood time and time again in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen to 20, where he tells us, go therefore into and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So here we have this God-fearing Ethiopian returning from the seat of Jerusalem, seat of Judaism, back down to his country in Ethiopia, to the capital, to his queen. And he hears, a gospel, hears the gospel from a man who is obedient to walk into the desert for this divine appointment. Do you get how all of this stuff is moving around. You have this guy who who came from Jerusalem and yet he couldn't even go in the temple. He's reading scripture, he's in the desert and this other guy comes up and meets him and he hears the gospel there. All because Philip was obedient to what God had called him to. Philip was obedient to the one that God had assigned him. Look in Acts eight thirty six. It says, And they were going along the road. They came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariots to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when he came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But, <laughs> but Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. What, a, what an amazing picture. So so it seems the eunuch was convicted of his sins and was prompted to respond with an immediate baptism. In his mind, there's water. There's no sense wasting time. I believe Jesus is the one that this prophet was talking about, and I want to trust my life to him. And it seems like in Philip's explanation of the gospel, he must have brought up baptism. He must have brought up this idea of baptizing, of being put underwater water. Immersed is, is what it really kind of means, is, but being immersed underwater in order to be renewed, in order to be symbol, symbolize what is going on, that newness of what was happening in his life. It sort of makes me, really challenges me that we need to make sure that when we present the gospel, that baptism is a part of it so that people understand. That symbol. Last week, we got to celebrate with Amy and Grace as they were baptized. And I want to encourage you, if you've not yet been baptized, let's talk about it. Let's have a, a conversation with it. There are some resources out there in the back. One, one is this little tiny book that says, why should I be baptized? Why, why should I do that? Or another one that, um, that is more of a workbook. It's called Preparing for Baptism. And it guides you through this whole process. How do you get ready for being baptized? Baptized, And then there's even a third one out there called Understanding Baptism. And I threw a curveball to Steve, so that's why you don't have that picture up there. But I want to encourage you, feel free to grab. If you're not yet baptized, let's talk. But grab one of those resources that's out there and walk through that and understand what baptism is all about. So the Ethiopian is baptized and Philip is then caught up by the Spirit. Now, it would be so interesting to go back in time and to watch this event take place. He's like, Philip found himself about 20 miles away. And, you know, teleportation, I mean, I have longed to teleport somewhere. Wouldn't that be cool? All those trips down to Charleston would be much faster if you could just, or going overseas. It would be a whole lot cheaper than getting on an airplane. And then you don't have to, get all undressed to go through the metal detector. (laughs) But the Ethiopian continued to his country. And in Scripture, we don't hear any more about him. But I want you to get this. According to Irenaeus, an early church father, he said this Ethiopian went on to share the gospel as a missionary to his people. Tradition tells us that many Coptic Christians today in Ethiopia trace their spiritual lineage to this man, Do you get the importance of the one? Philip had been evangelizing all over the place. He had just been ordained as a brand new deacon in the church, and he was moving about, and the Holy Spirit said, you go to the desert and talk to them, and I'll tell, I'll tell you what's going to happen. So he goes where nobody is and meets the one guy that God had assigned for. And that one guy believes and is baptized and goes back to his country and begins to share the gospel. So now there's a whole nation that has some form of faith in Jesus Christ. It might not look exactly like we do, but a lot of people came to faith through him. So Philip's obedience to reach this one, has, I believe, has a lasting impact today. So this is just one example, just in the book of Acts, where a single person was reached by one other single person. And there is this precedent. In fact, if you look, just write a note for yourself in John chapter 1, verses 35 to 51, when you look at the way the early disciples began to be gathered around Jesus Christ, Jesus called a few people, and then Andrew goes, and we're going to talk about him next week, but Andrew goes and says, hey, Pete, come on, let's, I, I got to introduce you to this guy. And Jesus finds Philip, and then Philip goes to this other guy named Nathaniel and says, Hey, come on, there are these one on one encounters where people are bringing people individually to Jesus Christ. They each understood the importance of reaching one. So let me ask the question again Who is your one? Who's that one that you might have written on on one of the bookmarks? Who's that one that you've been praying for for the last 14 days? And what can you and I do to be obedient and intentional to reach this one? Maybe it's reading scripture together. Maybe it's just taking time to open the word of the Lord. Hey, let's, let's read this and talk about it. Maybe it's offering to pray and then praying right there. Have you, you've, you guys have been in those situations where someone says, hey, will you pray for me? And then you say, sure. And then you go away and then you forget to pray. Has anybody else done that besides me? Yeah. Why not just say, hey, can we pray right now? Maybe it's inviting them to church or, as we said a couple weeks ago, bringing them. Maybe it involves repenting of our own sin of rebellion against God. When the Holy Spirit has said, you go talk to this person. I don't know how many times I've been in that boat. I God, it doesn't make sense for me to turn my car around and go talk to that person on the side of the road. God, are you sure? I I don't have time. i got to be somewhere, God. My time is more important than that person's soul. Maybe we need to repent. Earlier, Dan read in Matthew 13, 45 to 46, he said, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all he had and bought it. You see, there is great value in the kingdom of God. It's worth giving up everything. It's worth screwing up our schedules. It's worth going to the desert in obedience to what the Spirit of God is leading us to. It was worth even enough for Jesus Christ to give up his entire life. To take on his body, his perfect body, our sin, so that we could have a relationship with him. When we see the importance, the value of the importance of the individual that God has assigned for us, we reflect the value that is in the kingdom of God. It may not have made sense for Philip to go into the desert, to start walking toward Gaza, it showed value of the kingdom of God there. We're not called to grow the kingdom through emotional manipulation or crowd-pleasing antics. We are called to grow the kingdom of God by making disciples, not converts, to invest in one, pouring our lives into one and leading by example. Let me close with very, two very brief stories. A friend of mine, his name is Tim. He's a pastor over in Virginia. He has been... One of his neighbors is uh, an author who is agnostic. He's in his mid-70s. And for whatever reason, God has opened up the door for Tim and this man to, uh, to spend time together. They'll read Scripture together, and then Tim often closes their time in prayer. And so they'll meet once a week for about an hour. And Tim said when I was with him a week or two ago, He said that lately, it's so interesting. He said, we'll finish our time and I'll pray. And then his friend will will say really loudly. Remember, this guy is at least started out as an atheist. Now maybe he's agnostic. He doubts that God even exists. But Tim will say amen. And then his friend will say God. And then he'll say some prayer. And one of the prayers he prayed recently he said, God, if you can get me past 70-some-odd years of doubting, help me. And please bless Tim. Tim said he got up and just gave the guy a hug and walked away. I don't know where God's going to take that with him. I don't know where, but God is clearly moving. And it's because Tim was able and willing to reach one. Let me tell you about one other really quick story. This week, Friday, I had a chance, I spoke at chapel at Mount Airy Christian Academy. And there are a bunch of people, actually, some people there know you guys. And I can't remember all their names, so I'm going to try to make connections right here. But there was a, a young lady who came up to me while I was waiting for the carpool line because I got stuck. I wasn't waiting for a kid, I was waiting to just leave. And she came up to me and she said, Do you know Joyce Berton? I said, yeah, I don't know her by that name, but yeah, I know that lady. And she said, I grew up with her daughter, Joni. And I was like, hmm, funny. My, my wife grew up with her daughter, Joni, too. And apparently, Joni and Mandy, this girl, this lady, were the best of friends from the time they were small. And Joy Brill, at the time, Breton, would bring her, bring Mandy to church at the church they were attending, Joy ended up leading Mandy to Christ as a young woman. And now, here, some 30 years later, that young woman is sharing the gospel in her classroom with dozens of students because Joy was faithful to reach one. We're not called to reach only one, but we need to at least reach the one that God has assigned for us at the time. So be praying for who is your one. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the encouragement we have in your word. Who is, thank you for the challenge you've placed before us to make disciples. God, we thank you for Tim and his example and just his faithfulness to share the good news with his friend. God, we pray that you would bring him faith God, we thank you for Mandy and the way that you called her out of darkness into this marvelous light of a relationship with you. And thank you for her obedience now, decades later, as a follower of Christ. And God, we pray that you would help us to be faithful in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our families, in our extended families, among our friends, friend groups, in our classes. God, may people see the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and Spirit, help us. Help us to have the words to say when you call us to share. God, we can easily become so comfortable. We can easily easily become so complacent and just assume that we're gonna let things go the way they are, but God, I pray that you would change us. Forgive us when we rebel against you, against that prompting of your spirit. Help us to walk in faith.